Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to the Lonely Cello Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Wright, and I am here with... Carrie Ann Suter. Nee, 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 nee. I'm so excited <laughs> to finally be able to have you on. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, she's basically my favorite person ever. She's been like my BFF, ride or die, since mid-90s, we'll call it. Since we were small beans. We were tiny little beans. I mean. Little music school beans together. I feel like our brains were beans. We were like... <laughs> We were like adults, but with bean brains. <laughs> you know how like they like they show the like the the skull of a cat, and then they show like the actual size of the cat brain, <laughs> like and it's like like a little cashew. Like we had like a cat brain, right? Uh, you know, wow. I mean. <laughs> And the the worst thing is, like, some people are like, you know, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for you. I'm like, I can't believe the two of us survived under each other's influence. <laughs> I'm just, I'm I'm amazed that we are alive. Yeah. We at did all. it. We did, we did it. Yay. <laughs> we are here. So we are here. So, um, so you're, you're Carrie Ann Suter and... Um, we originally, we met as, uh, music students. Um, I think I was maybe in my June, going into my junior, one of my junior years. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were two of them in there. Um, and then I think you were maybe a, a sophomore or something like that. Yeah. And you primarily played the flute. And while you are still a fluty person, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Oh, well, yeah, I, I still I still do play um, a little uh, differently than I used to. But my main job right now is voice acting. So I do Woo-hoo. commercials, e-learning, stuff like that. Stuff like that. And maybe at the end, if we're very good, I will ask her to put on like her like most computery, generic, terrifying robot voice, which she can just lapse into. In fact, I used to hear her do it. Like when you'd be <laughs> on the phone with like something that's high pressure. My phone was voice. like, yeah, your phone voice. And it just like, and you would like adopt like this terrifying like facial posture. And I'm like, who is this person? And Somebody then as soon is as you, getting it. Yes. And then as soon as you would like hang up the phone, you'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> it's just, it's really impressive. And also now I'm all of a sudden self-conscious because my voice I know is like ridiculous anyway. But then compared to her voice, I just feel like I'm like, down to you. <laughs> we always, we always hate the sound of our own voice. There's a science behind it. I, I can't remember if it was Invisibilia or there was actually a science behind the voice in your head. And I'll have to, I'll have to remember what that is and send it to you. Yeah, but is there science behind? I also hate what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Like that could have been done better. Here we go. We are 90, 97 minutes into the podcast and we haven't even talked about a thing. That is, that's how this is going to be. No editing. This bad boy is just going straight up. Oh boy. Let's just do it. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So um, the whole point of today's podcast though is for two folks who went through music school together and then thought a lot about teaching and also we experienced, I think, some of the like great things about music school and also some of the not great things oh, yeah. about music school. Um, and what I would like today to accomplish is that we equip you, the uh, earnest adult learner, with kind of some ideas to take forward into your the way you think about your continuing education, things that you may think are not important that are, things that you might actually have your heart set on that were trivial um so let's um let's talk first though um because one of the things there's a huge stigma around adults who are really serious about music um they think that like oh it's so cute and like you can't do it unless you started from like a very early age um and i think both of us even though we started from a fairly early age i don't think either of us 
was obviously going to be like a super genius professional musician from like the youngest youngest age so um so yeah just what how how did you come to be a music major like how did you start when did you know you were going to be like serious about music that is a really good question, and no one's ever asked me that before, actually. So no one's ever asked me. I, I mean, I don't remember. Um, but, you know, I came from a really um, – my home life, my parents didn't listen to music. N- not at all. I mean, they listened to music in the car going somewhere, but it wasn't active listening. And so my journey through music was just like – through television, through um, the radio in my room. It was always like this solitary place for me. And so I remember watching Sesame Street one day and Gordon had this shiny flute. And I was just like, that looks so beautiful and crazy and it sounds so wonderful. I want to do that. And so I did. And throughout my childhood, my parents were supportive of me and my journey, of course, monetarily, but there wasn't any sort of a connection to music. I didn't really have a great support system, even into, you know, going through high school and then ultimately going into to, uh, music school. I just kind of was like, yeah, this is something I'm good at. I guess I'll do this. And I loved it, but I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into my path as a musician at all or um, until I was probably even out of music school, to tell you the truth. I mean, an actual set path of my um, my musical journey, really. Um, yeah, that's funny. So my dad, like... Uh really pushed me into being a musician because he fancied himself a musician um but really what was not so much it's like actually he's like the least disciplined musician ever like he wanted to learn things by ear and i remember he couldn't get the hang of dave brubeck and so there was there was a what piece is that is that rondo a la turk mm-hmm. it's but it, it it's in a um a meter that goes over the bar line and that did not compute to his brain. So he would go be ya dee da dee da 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 buddy. So he had like measures of four. But my mom was the same thing. Like music is like something that's on in the background or like a thing that like kind of whatever's on the radio, it's and it's not a problem. Like it, nothing offends or it particularly entices her. And it was really weird to feel like a connection to music as soon as I started taking private lessons and then for me to be like listen to this and my dad would be like well that could be better and my mom was like that's great right yeah I feel like there's this for me as a child going through music school and not even feeling like I was taking an active role and I didn't feel like I had a lot of support from my family, it wasn't until I was on my own as an adult person where I took charge of my musical life. And so yeah. I see I see adults coming to me feeling so self-conscious that they haven't had this experience as a child. And it's like, you can start from where you are yeah, and there, take there control. Literally, yeah. Yeah. And also, and I was thinking about this. So depending on, um, depending on what instrument you play, there are different bars for you to jump over into getting into music school. Yes. So for instance, so something like the flute, the violin, the cello, there are so many people who play these things that you really did by, you know, a certain age have to be at like a, a semi-professional level. You have to be really serious about it. And of course, it's music school, so they are looking for you to be a student and to be taught. But they just, they can tell like what level you practice at by the way you play and the kind of mistakes you make. But there were other instruments, a lot of the bass players, Actually, some of like the low brass or unconventional instruments that you like don't recruit as much. What's interesting is 
a lot of these kids, especially wind instruments where your embouchure isn't even settled until like your teeth have actually, like you can't have braces. Right. Like your jaw has to have a certain kind of strength. Your body has to largely have stopped changing so much in your face where people come to it later. Like there's not a lot of little kids that start out on French horn, for instance, even though it's the most brutally difficult instrument. So what was interesting and the whole point of this is to encourage you because there were people who actually kind of started getting serious right at the end of high school and music school that's where they got super i mean those are the people who were always in the practice room much longer than a lot of us yes you know, granted i i i worked on being more disciplined towards the end but anyway so all i'm saying though is that you can actually get you don't need a running start and by the end of music school the people who had stuck with it which i would say was probably three quarters of the people who started yeah were absolutely ready for the professional world. And that's four years starting as an adult. So just like, don't freak out if you feel like you're starting from scratch. You can absolutely start from where you are. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and so I'm thinking about music school and I'm kind of thinking about like, let's just talk about without even evaluating what they are, what are the courses that like we had to take to kind of succeed? Um, what are the ones that you remember? Well, definitely the basic music theory class of um, being able to sight sing and see a melody and sing it back. Um, solfege classes, that that stuff. Um, our harmony classes, um, form and analysis, music history. Symphonic literature. Symphonic literature, specifically. Um, I may have had a wind band literature class, which was... Um, ah, that's turbo nerd, territory turbo nerd right territory. <laughs> um, and what else? Do, what else do we take besides? Um... Well, I kind of want to actually dig in just a tiny bit to the music theories because a lot of people think, well, yeah, that's about placing notes on the staff, and it's about placing uh, like notes in time, which mm -hmm. absolutely, by the way, and I tested into theory one. Theory one when I got in there. And oh, I am me too. So glad. I'm so glad that I did um, because it was really holding me back. I remember I was a decent cellist. I was like the big fish in a small pond. So I was like one of the top kind of five or six cellists in Riverside for my age. Um, and I remember, though, that there would be times when I would audition and get principal cello in a youth orchestra and I would be panicking listening to my stand partner as we're sight reading whatever orchestral piece we're playing, because if the rhythms got even a little bit oblique, I was completely lost. I didn't even, and I had great teachers. I'm pretty sure that I was just like so obsessed with the cello and not with like these other things. Um, like I didn't really understand the genesis of key signatures. Oh, yes. Yes. Like I, I didn't even understand how I they related either. to each other, all this stuff. So like theory one was like, I, I, I call upon theory one every single time I pick up the instrument or teach a lesson. And it was like I had this nebulous idea before and then theory one just crystallized it. Um, and then I think some of the stuff that we learned in there could be kind of cast, I think, aside. Like, I don't think we need to learn to conduct with two hands doing different times. No. I remember that was doing something. Um, I feel like maybe learning how to subdivide. <laughs> Subdividing? Mm-hmm. Super mm -hmm. duper important. So um, important. And then, and then um, even, were you in Heinen's class with me? Um, I don't know that I was in the class with you. I think I was behind one class. Right, yeah. Um, but I feel like even though everybody dreaded that class, the way she pushed our ears to listen to things that were like dissonant intervals, um, and she taught me about how to feel intervals, right? So like a major second feels more stressful than a minor second and things like that. So I feel like theory one and two and then theory seven, eight. Those are the ones that I call upon every day. If if you were to teleport us back to our last few weeks of our music theory classes and what we were actually able to sight sing, 
just, you know, give us a pitch and go. I mean, we were able to to sightseeing like Messian and all of this so atonal stuff. It was crazy. And I'm not certainly not at that level at this point of my life. But doing it every day was just, you know, and even kind of cramming a little bit. But we were so active in that in, um, you know, learning theory every day that it, it really stuck. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then um, everybody should know. So harmony, the harmony class basically comes from like, okay, so you know melodies and we learn to identify and sing melodies in like theory, but harmony is all about the context. So like, what is this chord? What is the tonal center of this thing? I failed that class one, two times. Oh. Two times I failed twice. So did so I. I Right. And even though now it's something that I really enjoy and it's very important, it's one of those things where um, you should take the class. And if it doesn't come naturally to you, it is fine. You just have to go back to it again. And in fact, did you take the jazz harmony class with me? I did not. It looked like so much fun. Like you would come home and I remember you were, was it jazz harmony where you arranged round midnight? Was that the class? Was that it? It was a different one. (laughs) That was the jazz arranging. That was jazz arrangement, of course. Jazz that I took. Um, can I just? I'm gonna quick tell the story. I think you know this story, but I'm gonna refresh your memory because I told Parsons this and that stuck with him. So we, I, I decided to be a jazz minor. Decided to get that in there because I was <laughs> dating the whole jazz department. But also, I <laughs> weren't <laughs> we I got all really excited? <laughs> weren't we all? But it was, you know. what I have to say, I owe some of those dudes and their enthusiasm for this music. They got me hooked on it. So it's like, I mean, honestly, I, I, I would not be where I am as a musician without dating those dudes and working at Baxter Northup. Those are like, I learned so much in yeah. those like weird environments. Okay, so I had to arrange a tune and I... I think I was really going through a Thelonious Monk period and I really loved Round Midnight and it had like a really kind of crunchy sounding um, uh, melody to it, which was actually I backed myself way into a corner because you have no room when a piece is so linear like that. I really should have chosen a ballad, but whatever. So I did an arrangement and it was meant to be a little bit oblique, but the whole problem is we were doing this without computers. We were writing all these scores out by hand. No computers. And you had to transpose. And we didn't just transpose for the regular jazz-like combo. It was for a whole band, including French horn. And French horn, of course, transposes into F. And I was cramming at the end because I did not have great time management. Oh, I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like, I mean, it was literally like I was finishing the night of, and it was just, I was crying. Yeah, it was stressful. It was really upsetting. I remember I had a a keyboard in (laughs) in the corner of the apartment. I was like doing it with headphones on. Okay, so um, keep in mind... I was dating one of the guys in the orchestra, in the orchestra, in the band, and then like one of my exes was like the first saxophone, and they they brought in the good band to sight read all of our arrangements, and mine was up like first, and I was like, okay, great, and immediately as they started reading it, I realized that I had failed to transpose the French horn part correctly. Every single note was the most intense like (laughs) stomach clenching nightmarish dissonance like this wasn't like oh it's funky it's good it's like it's like it's just it was the worst possible thing okay so and i remember like in a in a moment of rest paul's eyes locked onto mine and he gave me the eyebrow like girl what did you do (laughs) and so so afterward and all my classmates are like looking at me and they're like girl are you crazy okay matt harris who is a renowned like jazz pianist he's a he writes jingles is what he's famous for yep. and I, I used to laugh like oh, who grows up and writes jingles a multimillionaire. that's who. that's exactly like, right <laughs> you know, like i would write jingles for a living now if yeah I could. Mm-hmm. um and he turned to me and like the air was just like i'm like I'm about to get kicked out of the program and he said innovate and I was like oh I got away with it <laughs> like I that was like all the luck I've ever had in my whole life so so anytime I see I hear somebody on tv say the word innovative <laughs> my partner looks at me and he's like innovative <laughs> so anyway so um what I was gonna say though is also 
I got really bad grades and I failed the harmony. Actually, I bailed out of it the second time because I was mm-hmm. like, uh-uh, I, I'm, I'm just not going to get this. And jazz harmony, it's the same exact concepts, but the nomenclature is different. Right. And for whatever reason, and also it was taught by Rob Lockhart. God bless that man. He, he just taught it in a way to where it was like all of the stuff I learned before. It was like a series of dominoes that just fell. And I'm like, that's what they were talking about in the other class. So I guess what I'm trying to say is keep at it. It's really important. And also, I don't know about you, but for me, harmony tells me sometimes about how to emote or what to emote during a piece. Yes, it does. Right? Like, absolutely. Um. And there, there's something I kind of wanted to tack on about jazz and improvisation or um, improvisation and um, just the idea of learning the structural makeup of a piece, right? You, you know, you're in this environment with like jazzers or whatever, and there's this more relaxed way of looking at music, like yeah. what's going on isn't wrong, or what's going on might sound crunchy or funky or that's different or innovative. Innovative. Right. Yeah. Whatever <laughs> oh, that geez. is. But it's not wrong. Necess- you know, it's not wrong. Your, your analysis of the, you know, harmonies or whatever when you're studying it may be wrong, right? Factually wrong. But the way you listen to music in that setting, it's like you, you pick out things that you like and you hear. And I feel like with classical music, there's just there's this push to be good or right or correct. And that's for me totally spilled into, you know, learning classical harmony, all of that stuff. I, I felt so much pressure um, High pressure, yeah. yeah, to to get it right or to understand what was on the page, and I felt, frankly, I felt stupid for not understanding. And also, I found that, um, I think that you and I, in general, at least when we approach music, we're pretty joyful people. We're mm-hmm. pretty excited to play music. We like almost all music. It's just like, hey, I'm really happy to be playing this. And I remember feeling, especially in some of those classes, like the joy was being squeezed out of it. And as like it was like this war of attrition. Like it's just a, a shitty class you have to survive in order to call yourself a legit musician, which is the kind of derisive term that jazzers used to call yeah. us, you know. Um, but what I one thing I really took from jazz musicians, and I owe this to the my friends as much as the teachers is there is a joy with which they interact, like with the music. They're so excited. And I, how many times have we been in the car with somebody and they're like, shh, 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 here, listen to this drum fill, right? And we're like, <laughs> and you know, it's funny, now I'm that guy. Oh, I'm so insufferable. I'm like, oh, did you hear that? Oh, that's good. Yeah, like it's the worst, right? I, I do that with the worst things, by the way. I'm like, look, I know this is Justin Bieber, but do you hear that production quality? Like, yeah. I'm the worst. Oh, all the time. Anyway. So I feel like for a lot of um, the people who listen to this, I think, um, I mean, a lot of my students actually don't listen to any music that could be uh, qualified as um, like modern or Mm non-classical. And I think that listening to jazz really actually kind of reminded me, like it's actually all a straight line. All this composition from back, like, we just keep, like, scooping up other cultures, other ideas, other musicians, other countries, new instruments, new recording technology. And it's, like, it's, it's such a natural succession and we, the, the joy that you feel in it and the fact that you can be wrong or try something and, like, the world continues to turn. Right. Yeah, I found that super freeing. And, you know... It wasn't until I started collaborating outside of of college as an adult, um, people would ask me to play on their albums and do these things. And a lot of times, I mean, I did work with composers who had parts written out for me, and that's fine. That's great. But a lot of times, you know, people come to me and say, oh, can you you do something on this album? I kind of need some folky something in this. Vibes. Yeah. And... 
it would always terrify me because I thought, oh my gosh, what do, what do I, if I, if I make a mistake or what if he doesn't like it or I'm wasting somebody's time. And especially now in the age of being able to eat more easily record in your own home, you know, with, with home recording techniques, it's, it's even easier. But back then it was, you know, a big deal because, because you needed to have a designated space and, and all of this stuff. So there was this fear of like making this mistake, but it wasn't until I got you know, a little bit older and started doing this sort of improvising, it may be a classical sounding tune, it may be a rock tune or whatever it is. And just improvising my way through, did I start feeling like I was kind of more comfortable in my own skin as a musician? Um, Even as I'm playing classical music, you know, I think it kind of bled through. So that was a bit of a tangent, but um, I was feeling Um, it. I I want to also, um, would you, would you tell the listeners about the recitals at noon? Like what did, what did we have to do like about like attendance and performance? Because I feel like doing those, even though it was a massive pain in the ass, like, wow, it changed me. Yes. As a musician. Yeah. Uh, so we had noon recitals that would be from 12 to one o'clock on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I believe. And um, as part of our music theory class, right, we had these concert attendance cards that we had to, we had to have a set number of. It was a lot. It was a lot. I mean, it felt like a lot. I think now looking back at it, we would go for pleasure and be like, oh yeah, let's go see a noon, you know, noon recital. But it felt like such a burden because it was an assignment also. Um, we wanted to be practicing. Like, I don't know about you, but like every day I was there, I wanted to practice more because I could hear my colleagues getting better and better. And it just was like driving me. Yeah. And I just going to noon recitals, the people that would because I don't think you had you never had to do one. Did you? Did you actually have to perform? Was it a thing that you had to do? Yes. So you had to maybe it wasn't compulsory. But um, when you were working up to either a jury or a um, or your own like recital, I think, I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I never wanted to do them, but I know I did five or six. Okay. I did a couple. I remember doing yeah. a couple. So it must have been before recitals. I mean, yeah, before your jury and before recitals. Right. Um, my experience with noon recitals was I... I loved being able to see what other people were doing. And I loved being able to see the humanness about other other musicians who would get up there and do their stuff and make mistakes too. And I would I would just feel this sense of relief. It was like, oh gosh, you know, everything's okay. <laughs> we're all just playing and getting to know, especially when, when a lot of the jazz people would go up and do like yep. combo recitals, they're playing together. I, I'm a flute player. I play by my, you know, I don't, I'm the melody line. Like I, I never felt like this sense of collaboration with, I mean, of course, if you're in an orchestral setting, you listen to, you know, what's going on around you. But um, outside of that, I just didn't feel like this sense of collaboration so it was so cool to see people getting on stage and um on their lunch breaks (laughs) you know and and playing music I thought it was super cool yeah and I think what it was also really good for though is so you got the all of these benefits because the audience got to hear other people um which is there is a kind of comparison that goes on but it is a comparison that is like I've got to up my game, but I also can forgive myself for mistakes. Um, also, you just learn new pieces. And so I'd be like, oh, wait, what is he working on? Yeah. I want to work on that. But then for the performers, what it what it does and what I am, little Tamarack Arts plug here, mm-hmm. why, what I'm trying to do with Tamarack Arts is provide people that same kind of opportunity. Every single month, I want you to be able to have a place to kind of perform in front of colleagues. It's a safe space. But what it, what it does is it shows you that performance should be a place where you release. Yes. And where it's not high stakes. And that also you get used to um, the nerves. Because I do think it's a huge lie that people are like, oh, if you just practice enough, you won't be nervous. I'm like, I'm nervous because it matters to me. But I've learned over time to let my anxiety just sit next to me as opposed to like ride my performance. Yes. Um, 
right? Anyway, so just watching other people just gives you this tremendous sense of not just community, but like you feel like my experience is not unique. We're all doing this. We're, we're doing this together. And it was just hugely valuable. Um, so then I want to kind of talk about some of the things that like you really feel like you draw on all the time. So these can be like specific anecdotes, like things that happened. Um, like one of the things I just remember is I was just watching somebody and they started playing quietly and like their pitch went down the tubes. And I just remember the instructor said, your left hand, I mean for string players, always needs to play fortissimo. And it was just like, yes, yes, you need to stay confident and then also quiet. And I, that's like one of those things I think about um pretty much every day but there's like a whole bunch of things like an orchestra with gary pratt combo actually with G gary pratt i think is the person who saved my musical life oh yeah very important person to me um so are there any like lessons specific things it could even be flutey specific if you want to go there or just music in general you know there there is and i don't I don't talk about this moment a whole lot because it was super, super embarrassing for me. But um, I was probably in my first year um, and studying with Dave Shostak, who at the time was the um, principal flutist of the L.A. Chamber Orchestra. Um, he was like super, super working all the time. Every movie you heard with flute in it, he was he was the guy. And he was a very kind, kind, he is a very kind man and um, always very encouraging. And um, but I came in there one day and I said, I, I want to play the Jolivet Concerto. And I had started practicing it. And he just sat back and listened to me play. And he kind of nodded. And um, normally he's always very supportive. And he said, um, <clears throat> you're not ready for this piece. And I just kind of looked at him like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, I just, I really want to work on it. Yeah, and, I'll get ready. And yeah, and he looked at me with just this, I've never seen him be, he looked angry. And he said, I'm telling you right now, you're not ready for this piece. Practice, get back to me, and then we'll start this piece. You are not ready for it. You're going to waste your time. You're going to waste my time. And he has never spoken to me like that prior to that moment or after that moment because it was so, I was so mortified. And what hit home was that I wanted to do, I wanted to play this piece without these fundamentals that I wasn't willing to work on as a child. I just, I wasn't willing to, um, do the work to subdivide. I wasn't ready to do the work of just focusing in and practice doing the work. And I realize now that I just actually didn't know how. I didn't know how to practice. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, I would spend four and five hours in a practice room and come back for a day, four or five hours yeah. a day. Yeah, we all did. Yeah. And come back a week later and it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough because it's not that I sounded bad. It's that I couldn't complete the tasks that he asked me to do technically. Right. And, you know, I really had to do a lot of soul searching on what good practice was for me because it is different for everybody, you know, depending on when you practice and how you prepare to practice and what you do. So I'll never forget that. He's no, I just, yeah, the way Dave Shostak just dressed me down. And um, I don't know how many people he's ever done that to, but <laughs> it was bad. But I think about that a lot. Um, and that actually hooks into something that I really wish students would. This is, so teaching adult students is a pleasure. I love teaching adult students because like they show up, they want to do this. They're motivated. They tend to have the time. They, most of them have done very difficult things in their lives. So like they know what it takes to kind of outweigh the difficulty in a particular process and just keep at it. But one thing that I think Shostak was reacting to, and although I try not to get, I try not to get like angry or inflamed, but every now and again, I will become really frustrated because when a student comes to you 
but then they reject what you are saying. Yes. I always want to say, and I know it's not personal, it's never meant to be personal, but I always mean to say, who do you take me for? And do you think I do not know you as a musician and as a person and want the best for you? Do you think I'm just some imperious asshole who's just saying things to make you miserable? Like, never. And there are a couple people who I've run into, teachers, who are just imperious jerks who enjoy making people squeam. Squeam? Squeam? Squeamish. 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 Squeam. When you are squeamish, apparently you are squeaming internally. We're going to keep that in. I made up a word. I love that. Anyway, but... um. But I think it's pretty obvious that, that you and I are not those kind of people. And so it's just, it's when a student is either, I always want to say, do you actually think you know this better than I do? Because I am not good at like anything except this. This is the one thing I have been focusing on. I have done everything wrong. I have done it wrong so many different ways. And when I'm saying, here is point A, here is point B. I will navigate you there in a series of weekly sessions. And for a student to be like, ah, you know, I, I picked up this other piece. It's like, mm, why are you paying me if you do not believe me, if you do not trust me? Um, so, yeah, I think about, yeah, I mean, I think about stuff like that that was said to me um, and all of like the worst possible things that you could think about a student were totally accurate with me oh like, i didn't trust my teachers i thought i knew better yep i did too i, mm -hmm. I also the, the worst part is like i was doing it like i was winning competitions with terrible technique because everyone's like oh it's so musical and that was like this nectar that just plugged my ears and didn't allow me to like really get down until maybe the last semester no sorry the last year of my music studies when i got so hurt i had to sit out a semester and that was finally when i was like I should listen to everything that all of these experts have ever told me. And it was like a real griefing process, actually. <laughs> all that wasted time. Yeah, there is there is this process. You, you do have to, um, I think everyone goes through a grieving process in their musical career because you have to really let go of your ego. You have to let it go. And you have to at least get down to this spot where you can just try it. Just try it this other way. And just maybe, maybe it's not that you're wrong, but there's this other way. And there's yeah. this other way to make it easier. Right? I mean, yeah. we feel like music has to be so hard. Right. And I just got to this point and, and this is part of the, the Jolivet Concerto was, you know, there are these passages. It's a it's a competition piece and it's French that French pieces and flute literature are known to be just so, I mean, you just wouldn't have like, you know, a nice afternoon recital and just play Jolivet. Like it just doesn't, that's just not, I would it's never attempt that right now. Yeah. It's a big deal. And, you know, it just getting to this point where I physically didn't have anywhere to go. I couldn't play any faster. I couldn't because my hands weren't allowing me. I wasn't, my technique was so bad. I had this claw grip and it took years to just undo this claw grip. And, um, you know, I was doing all these circles in my mind as to why I, this other way was better. And, you know, finally with that sort of, uh, rude awakening, um, I had to break everything down and, and re reassess what was going on do you think most you know I always think of myself as like an aberration like yeah I had to break myself the hell down and build myself back up do you actually think that maybe that is what music school is actually for I I yes I do I think that we always think of it right as like this like oh it's this trajectory up and up and up and up no. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who actually didn't have like a real pit at some point. No, I think that you you learn so much. You're constantly sort of breaking things down and reevaluating and reinventing yourself because what you have in your mind of, you know, even if you do have in mind what you what your goals are, you know, oh, I want to I want to be in an orchestra. 
I want to perform in an opera orchestra. I want to uh, travel and play show tunes or whatever it is that you think you want to do. You learn all these things along the way and branch off into areas that you never thought that you could or that you would opportunities that you would have available to you. Um, And so and just life happens. You know, you're constantly learning. So, yeah, no, I, I think part of music school is is it's definitely not up all the way. Um, let's actually quick talk about what the average, um, like a, a week would look like at music school. So like what, you know, when you'd wake up, what kind of classes you would do, what, um, when your practices were, what ensembles you were in, and then what we would do in our off time, uh, and what's funny is even in the off time, for instance, we would go to, you know, parties and things. Half the time, it would end up with people effing taking their instruments. Yes, playing. yes, it did. So, so, um, so yeah, describe like, you know, we're like, let's just say we're like really in the middle of it. Like you still need to satisfy your music credits because that's what all music majors do. By the way, we burn through our music credits. And then the last like two and a half years, we're like, oh, no, so this is terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I remember my days, um, starting, I I had to really sort of get into a groove because I think I had started off taking 8am academic classes and it just because I felt like that was when I needed it. I needed to get up and get moving and all this stuff. And it took me a long time to realize like, actually, Yes, I can be a morning person, but I need to spend this morning practicing. Yeah. Other people would rather play at night or whatever, but you kind of have to just like figure out what sort of, you know, where your own personal practicing fits in with all of your classes. So, you know, I would get to school hopefully by, you know, 8.30 and I would probably practice about two hours. I would get my warm up in and my technique before I did um, maybe what, 10, 10 to 10.50 was a music theory class. Um, 11 a.m. would be, I can't remember how it worked with the ensembles, but I know for the majority of our, our time there, it was orchestra. Um, and that was a two hour, wasn't that a two hour rehearsal? rehearsal time and then two or two and a half hours with a 10 minute break in the the middle yeah that's yes that's right so it was a two to two and a half hour rehearsal time followed by I would have wind ensemble following that so that would be another two hour rehearsal so there were days most of my days uh Monday through Friday were I would average from eight to 13 hours of playing per day that's right and then Easily. we would, of course, be listening. We'd be listening to other people playing. And in the practice rooms, um, again, this is something I'm so desperate to see if I can get going at Tamarack. Because I think maybe one of my top favorite sounds in the world is opening the hallway door at a music school and hearing all the people practicing in the practice rooms. It was a wonderful, <sighs> you know, the sound coming during jury week. Oh, and everybody's on their A game also, right? Like really, really like polishing their pieces. Yes. And it's just so funny because you could go where we went to school. There wasn't um, practice worms. I don't know when they started really regulating uh, when you could go in and out of practice rooms. But, you know, sometimes if you couldn't sleep, we'd go across the street and practice. And that would be at two in the morning, you know, that there was there was a secret key that Mm -hmm. was available if you knew the right people, it's so funny because honestly, like they think about college as a time where you get like super drunk and you're doing all these drugs and don't get me wrong. There was like the normal college drinking and things. First off, we were so poor that if we were drinking, it was because people were like buying us things. Yeah, we we didn't have the money for that. But but like the thing that we would do that was quote unquote bad is we would sneak into the music school to practice (laughs) some more. It's like, I felt so guilty. Like I felt like I was really like living on the edge and like, oh my gosh, what a crime of virtue. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So there was that. And then, um, and then frequently, um, I mean, students, there would be tickets that were like given to us. Like the LA Phil would sometimes just be like, we've got extra tickets. Or there would be, 
uh, there'd be operas and musicals that the drama department would run and we would have to be played. There was not really a choice. I mean, if your teacher said you need to play this, it doesn't matter if you want to or not. Yeah. You go and you play that. Um, so all of that was like, so you can just see it's like so much experience and that we want to, as I continue to develop as a cellist, I'm, I see room for so much improvement and development. And as I want my students to develop, you want to try to recreate the greatest hits of music school, right? So the things that were so important. So like having a knowledge of music history, having a knowledge of the theory underpinnings, giving yourself lots of uh, exposure to other people, other students performing. Um, by the way, most music schools might be weird with COVID, but after all of this is manageable, most music schools love to have people from the outside come and listen to student recitals. Oh, absolutely. Which is, which is like super inspiring and uh, also gives them the student, you know, a, a bigger audience to, to play in front of. Um, so one, one last thing before we start thinking about um, wrapping things up. Can you th think of any things besides like trusting your teacher, what they say, to like maximize the learning that you do in lessons, because we talk about like the conservatory approach as if it's something just the teacher provides to the student. But I think that the student needs to be in a conservatory mindset, right, to make the most out of things. Yes. So yeah, what, what, what advice would you give? I, you know, I have a couple of things that I think are, are um, super, super key. One is don't be afraid to ask your teacher if you can record a lesson. Don't oh be afraid. God. Don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, even if you don't feel like you have time to listen back or whatever, you have that because there is no way, I, at least the way I studied, I was so, it was such an intense time for me. And I was really listening to my teacher and trying to do what he's asking me to do that it was just being able to really remember in my mind what was going on was so difficult. So being able to just sit and listen back either when you're, you know, on a walk and getting some exercise or however you want to listen back in your car or driving or whatever, um, being able to objectively listen. And, and then again, recording yourself when you practice. Because yeah. you're just not able to focus on all of these things and have an objective view of your sound just from practicing. It's just impossible. So, like, like nobody wants to listen to themselves practice? No. But the whole thing with music is that it is an audible practice. It is an audible thing that we do. So, it's like, you know how once you start performing... Like you're when you're like performing in front of other people or doing something high pressure, like an audition or a jury or even a lesson where you feel maybe a little less than comfortable um, and your ears suddenly hear everything afresh and you're aware of how clunky the movements of your fingers are or how like, you know, you're you're not doing all of these things correctly. Um, so. That was always happening. It was always happening yes but when you are so in the heat of battle which by the way there is no crime in the fact that you cannot concentrate on all of these things neither can i and i've been doing this for absolutely ever it's just a lot going on so if you start getting used to hearing yourself play it's like you can fully acknowledge the things that are going wrong and it's only when you see them that you can try to fix them Absolutely. And I think one of the major major hurdles that I went through as a performer is that, you know, everything sounds so much more magnified in your head. And you can feel, you feel this, you know, you're doing a big crescendo and you feel like you're doing this big, beautiful crescendo over these, you know, four, eight bars or whatever. And you listen back and it's just I was just gonna say it's like this the recorder music from Squid Game. It's like beep boop beep. Oh, oh, You're like, wow, that was not as emotional. Yeah. Not. And then you start realizing, oh, I've gotta use my, you know, I've gotta use my body. I've gotta really, you know, there's so much more to it. And um you just, yeah, eventually you're going to learn, I guess. But I mean, it's like a light switch when you can just go back and listen. Um, so I highly recommend as much as you may 
hate listening to yourself. I mean, that's what we're here for is using our ears. So, right. you know, I have one other thing that I, I don't know how you were like this with, with practicing, but I know when I had a lesson, I would be so mentally exhausted that I would just want a day off. You know, I would just do my lesson and I would be like, yes, that was great. Or, oh, that done was not so great. Day. Yeah, <laughs> done for the day and just take off and go eat a cheeseburger or go do something else. And what I learned, it took me oh, so long to learn this, but you got it. You got to push through and and keep everything fresh in your mind. That's right. And if you can, go home and at least work on a little bit of this that you That's all you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say just like there should be like a couple main concepts that you come out with or like a, a specific exercise you're supposed to repeat. And then it's just like 10 minutes after the lesson, just do a couple of these things to make sure you can do it on your own. Right. And then then you can actually take the rest of the day off if you really want to. Um, um, and then another thing that I would say sort of links into this, when your teacher demonstrates, really watch the way their entire body interacts with the instrument. So don't just listen, because what that is is mysterious. How can anybody get that sound? It's like, it's totally, for me anyway, hearing some of my teachers just drill these really hard parts was like very disengaging for me because I'm like, wow, I am a poor substitute for this. And what you realize, though, is the technique happens in the body. And the reason they sound that way is because of the way they physically interact with the instrument. And if you can really start watching and cultivating an eye for what they're doing with the instrument and imitating that, that is every bit as important as like the mental bananas gymnastics that you're doing in your head to try to make all these other things happen. Absolutely. It, it's this full body experience. And I have a little anecdote on, on that note that I think yeah. is, is really, really important to think about. And it's, you took me to, um, you took me to a party. It was a holiday party at the Santa Monica airport, right? And it was a party in the hangar. And they That's had this right. super fancy new flight simulator. And your flight instructor gave me <laughs> a lesson, gave me a flight lesson, a lesson in flight. It was a good night. It was such a great night. And I was in this, you know, plane, fake plane, taking off and landing from the Van Nuys airport. <laughs> and it was the most terrifying experience because it did. It felt so real. And it I was does. sitting there and your flight instructor had said, all right, Carrie, you're doing great. Yeah, you need to wiggle your toes. Uncurl your toes. And I thought to myself, what on earth? How does he know I'm wearing these like super fancy shoes? You couldn't see my feet at all. And it was. Yeah, we thought it was going to be a much fancier party. Yeah. And it turns out there was like a truck with in and out burgers and everybody was wearing like really comfortable clothes. <laughs> and we looked like like runway models. Like we were overdressed. This airplane to, hanger. To be sure. <laughs> and, and I, can't, you know, I, how did you know that? And he's like, well, that's just where your tension is when you're doing this. I, you know, I've been doing this a long time. This is where you need to relax your whole body. And once you can do that, you can fly this plane, basically. Mm-hmm. And that, that really stuck with me. You know, you're not flying the plane with that part of your toe, really. But it affects the way you the way you view everything and the way you interact the with, way you the, the yeah. way you sense things because yes. otherwise yeah all of your attention is kind of on this thing that is all like bunched up um and also actually it's funny they talk about flying by the seat of your pants and what that actually refers to is something that applies a little bit to music and that they call flying by the seat of your pants because the thing that you don't want to do is an uncontrolled descent or ascent it's really important to stay within a couple feet of where you're supposed to be flying and by the seat of your pants, all that means is your butt can actually detect if if you are ascending, it's going to feel heavy in the seat. And if you're descending, it's going to feel light in the seat, just like, you know, on a roller coaster. And so just having an awareness of your body, because in the end, both of these things, everything we do is done with our body, 
not with our mind, not with the words we think. So like I always tell my students that it sounds so hippie, but I'm like, stay in your body. Stay in your body as you're playing because this is a knowable task. This is something that is possible with just a couple fingers, with just two arms. This is a thing that you can actually do, but you do have to be aware of your body and you have to let it be open to the whole experience of playing physically in order for it to happen with a sense of ease and then for the emotion to come through, right? Because we're always emoting. It must be like this with the flute, right? So like if you're feeling freaked out, your sound is like freaked out. Yes. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I yeah. get it. If I'm scared, I get a ning 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 sound to my. <laughs> and with the cello, it's more like, <laughs> like I the the note has like a question mark at the end of it. Maybe this is the note. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> um. All right. So. I was going to say if there's if there's anything else um, you feel like is important for um, our adult people to know or any kind of encouragement you want to offer. Also, actually, this might be a thing. I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't put this in the brief um, that I was going to ask you. Dun, dun, dun. But you, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> now, granted, music and voiceover have a, have a pretty fat Venn diagram in terms of just You've got an ear for sound, for all the technology you need. Um, at the same time, it is still a daunting career change as an adult, right? You've just chosen to like, I'm going into this new area and there's all these, you know, different rules and learning. And it's very similar to music as, as there are like people who are like dominant in the industry. There are certain teachers that have cachet that can help you network and get like to where you need to oh, go. Oh, sure. Yeah. And a lot of the students who listen to this are kind of navigating, if not a career change, they certainly want the emphasis of their life to be music. They want it to be a, a meaningful part of their life. And it has a kind of similar feel to like a career trajectory because you have to be that serious about it to get any good at all, right? You have to be like deadly serious. Yes. So I'm just wondering, do you have any like anything to, to offer that would be like an encouragement or something that you've learned as you've made a bit of this shift and it's okay if the answer is nope why did you ask me this you dummy dum-dum <laughs> well I think there's you know there's a couple of things and and one one thing is that you whatever you're doing you know whether it's practicing or playing um you take the time for yourself to just without any distractions without any distractions, especially when you're practicing, right? Just allow yourself this time with your music to mm. just be with yourself. That was something that I really had to, I really had to work on that. I would always get distracted. Oh, I have to, I have to pay bills at two, you know, I've got to do this and do that. And I wasn't allowing myself to be fully present in my practice routine. So flowing into what I'm doing now, which does have some musical elements about it, I'm speaking phrases that have, you know, it's just the same language as this musical yep. line and having conversations with invisible people. You're having an invisible conversation as well when you're when you're playing music, right? You've got Absolutely. what else is going on? You've got this piano accompaniment, you have this orchestral accompaniment, all of these things. And I'm allowing myself that time when I'm preparing for an audition or I'm auditioning to think about that and have this conversation and um, without any distractions, you know, just allow yourself time. It's, it's yeah, okay. Don't, and yeah, don't feel guilty about what else you should be doing. Like fully commit to whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and it's okay if you're like, well, Today, the instrument is just like, I have too many things going on. You know, that's okay to just be like, I will do this. But yeah, yeah you're right. I think a lot of busy people um, have a sense of guilt for their practice, like it's self-indulgence. So much guilt. It's, it's, a, it's a discipline, though. It is. And also, it, if it fills you up, if it is meditative or it is for you, you can give yourself more fully 
to other things if you allow yourself to be filled up by things that you do that you enjoy. It's not selfish. It actually allows you to be generous of spirit. It does. And whether it's, I think, whether or not you're taking 15 minutes or 30 minutes or hours in a day, you know, if, it, if it's only 30 minutes, you can make that 30 minutes count. I know yesterday um, I had to, to do some auditions and I sat down and I went to do it and I realized, you know what? Today's not the day. Today isn't the day. I am packed full of stuff. I could not get my brain wrapped around whatever I was trying to do. And I just shut it down and I did my stuff. Now I get to go back today, you know, later, and I get to, you know, push through and do what I need to do and study and, and, and do these auditions. But it's not helping anybody if you just, if you're just thinking about something else, you have to be in it. And again, you know, allowing yourself that time. To me, now when I think of it, it feels, it feels super indulgent to me. And because when I was in music school, I was always feeling so guilty, guilty about not doing something you know, guilty about not paying attention when I'm practicing, guilty about not studying for my, you know, music history final. And so, you know, I think being present is, that's what I have to say about that. Just be present. Yeah. It's, although I do feel like it is a pretty rare quality for 22 year olds to be present. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, honestly, I think that's, maybe that is the other thing about music school and that people who are actually grown like fully formed human beings you guys don't need eight hours of playing a day to achieve mastery but we did because we were just like electrons bouncing around so unpredictably the only thing that was our anchor was our absolute love for and determination to get better at this but we took every possible circuitous route and detour we got better mostly for at least the first couple of years by brute force spending all that time. And only at the very end, I think, did any of us have even this, a grasp of like, you know what, this is what practice really is. I don't know about you, but I learned how to practice and kind of how to play most when I started teaching. Oh, that absolutely. That was when it was like, oh, wow. It's because it's so obvious when somebody else is doing something bonkers. And then, of course, you sit down to practice and you're like, "Eh, that looks familiar, (laughs) right? That's me. For sure. I was doing the thing. Anyway, so um, that's our show for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you didn't, honestly, just who are you even? Honestly, because this was super enjoyable. It was super enjoyable for me. I loved being here. And thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, would um, would you say um, hold on, would you say um, we look forward to um, let's see, this is bad. I'm gonna have to edit this for sure. We're gonna say thank you for listening to the Lonely Cello podcast in like one of your most like altered voices oh my god here i go <laughs> thank you for listening to the lonely cello podcast ah that's so weird it's been a pleasure i, I love it i love it that makes me so happy all right i'm gonna hit stop on my recording